Today, we get to talk all about grace. Now, as we gather here together on Sundays, and really as a church, when we gather together anytime, we should be talking about grace. This is one of the markers of following Jesus, is being graceful people, experiencing the grace of Jesus Christ. But today, we just get to camp out during our teaching time and drill a little bit deeper on grace. Grace upon grace. In fact, maybe if you're just kind of having your notes and you want to open those up, even tally how many times I say the word grace this morning, because it's going to be all over the place. I want you to walk out of this place with no fuzziness when it comes to the idea of God's grace. And when I think of grace, I think of one of my parenting um, highlights, and that is when our middle son was two and a half, this was several years ago, and we were all at the dining room table attempting to eat dinner with a two and a half year old. If you have one, you understand what I'm thinking or, or talking about. And our two and a half year old son, Samuel, was just freaking out. He wouldn't eat. He was being disobedient. We were giving him lots of warnings. And then finally, it was just too much. And so my wife, Marie, picked up Samuel, two and a half years old, and began to take him to his room. Samuel, knowing that he's in for a punishment, just starts crying and just screaming, no, no, please, no, no, no. I mean, if you have a two and a half year old, you know what this feels like. My wife is carrying him and our house is small. It was only a few feet to his bedroom from our dining room. But for him, it probably felt like an eternity as she's walking with him. And he's just like, no, no, just anticipating the punishment that is to come. As my wife walks in to his room, still holding him, he's crying all of a sudden, a light bulb pops up in my two-and-a-half-year-old's brain. I don't know where he had heard this or what, but he looks at my wife. He stops crying. He has these big eyes, and he goes, Mommy, Mommy, ha- have a grace on me? Have grace on me? <laughs> and my wife, looking at him like, wow, he's going to make a great defense attorney one day, this final <laughs> plea bargain, uh, just starts laughing and just saying, Okay, let's make this a teachable moment. Yes, we will have grace on you in this moment. I don't know where he caught that or learned that. He didn't understand what the word meant, but he did understand that grace had power. And for us, maybe we're older than two and a half, and maybe we do understand that grace has power, but we're still trying to figure out, okay, what exactly does this mean? As we look up at God and we say, have grace on me? What exactly happens from that point? And so let's start in your Bibles in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the New Testament. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. Look at John, chapter 1. And then specifically look at verse 14. John 1, 14, and I want to read 14, 15, verse 16, and then we'll stop at 17. It's one of the great opening chapters in the Bible of any book. John 1, 14 says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's talking about Jesus. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John testified about him and cried out, saying, 
This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I. And even just to kind of help you understand, John, the author, the disciples writing this, but he's now quoting John the Baptist in that line. And then verse 16, or it continues in verse 15. For he existed before me, verse 16. For all, speaking of Jesus, all of his fullness, we have all received. And grace upon grace. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. And listen to this beautiful truth. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Can you say amen this morning? Amen. This is a wonderful, wonderful truth from God's word. Jesus is the epitome, the definition of grace. When you look at his life, when you study the gospels, you see Jesus as he interacts with his family. You see him interact with his followers, his disciples. You see him interact with strangers. And you even see him interact with his enemies. And in every one of those instances... In Jesus' interactions, you see grace upon grace. Grace and truth realized through the person of Jesus Christ. And as you drill down deeper and you go, well, what does this grace look like from Jesus? You see that it is grace that is undeserved. It's grace that is undeserved kindness. It is grace that is undeserved kindness, full of favor and forgiveness. It is grace that is undeserved kindness, favor, forgiveness, and it's absolutely free. You'll never be asked to repay God's grace as seen through Jesus. And even if you tried, you never could. In the Old Testament, we see the word grace defined in one way, and that is to bend down or to stoop down. And so picture that for a moment, grace bending down, stooping down. There was a professor that I came across that said these words, and I love them. Love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. Love that goes and bends down is grace. And this is the type of grace that God has shown us through Jesus By bending down towards us, he sent Jesus as the humble king. John 1 says, the word became flesh. God, in his utmost highest, came into our world. He bent down, he stooped down to come into our world and live in the flesh. And we read in the Gospels that Jesus lived the life that none of us could live. And that Jesus died the death that we deserve. And then the Bible, the gospel specifically say that Jesus rose again and he conquered the biggest obstacle that any of us will ever face. If you think your boss is tough, if you think your credit card balance is insurmountable, think about this. Sin was an obstacle bigger than anything you can imagine. And Jesus, through the cross, conquered sin and overcame death. Jesus is the very definition of grace. It's awesome. That's what we come together to celebrate and to remind ourselves when we gather in this space. Jesus is the definition of grace. 
But there's a question with that, and the question that comes to my mind is this. Okay, here's Jesus defining grace in his life, and here I am in 2015 on a Sunday in October. Happy birthday, Calvary. How do those two things interact? How is the grace of Jesus, how does that impact my life going forward this week? And so you start to wrestle with that, and so you ask some natural questions out of that question. Like, do we just inherit grace? Are we born into grace? Or do we grow into grace? Like your age, you grow older, and so you just kind of naturally, God's designed it, you just grow in grace. Or is there some system where you can earn God's grace? And that's how they intersect. You have the grace of Jesus defined by his life, and then our lives, maybe, maybe you kind of earn that, and, that, and that's how we receive, we acquire the grace of God. And so these are valid questions in our everyday life. The book of Ephesians chapter 2 gives us the clearest answer to these questions that I've seen anywhere in the Bible. And so we're continuing through this great book of Ephesians and our theme and our series, Better Together. Last week, we looked at the first seven verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Right now, go from John 1 and go to Ephesians 2 verse 8. And then next week, we'll finish off this great chapter, one of the best chapters in the Bible, in my opinion. But now, go to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. kind of the middle of the New Testament, written by Paul. And this is what it says. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. The prophet Isaiah said that, and so does Peter. And that is so true as we read here in Ephesians 2. This passage matters to us. This is a clear answer to how do we receive grace How does it intersect with our lives? How does it impact what we're doing after church here today? Ephesians 2 gives us this answer. And so kind of the idea is like, all right, let's just keep reading this like 30, 40 times today. And let's just call it a day. Like, you got it. Here's the answer. Let's just move on to a different topic. But here is like my pastoral heart for us as a church, my brothers and sisters, is I am concerned that we read this passage Yet there's some blockage in our brain or our experiences that says, yeah, 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 that's, that's God's grace. It's, it's free to us. It's undeserved. We get it. But for some reason, we have a hard time accepting it personally. I get God is graceful. I've seen songs about God's grace. But it's hard for me to personalize God's grace in my life. And I'm wondering why that's the case. Why is it hard to accept God's grace? And I think one of the major reasons is this, is that grace given to us by God through Jesus clashes with our cultural value for independence and self-sufficiency. You see, our cultural narrative from 
preschool on up is really this. You must earn your way to the top. If it sounds too good to be true, it is. <laughs> Three of you are with me. I got to start working harder here. No. We make money the old-fashioned way. Remember this 80s commercial? We earn it. Okay, if you're over 40, you get it. Um, there's no such thing as a free lunch. There is no pain without... This is the cultural narratives that swirl around our heads. And so we have a difficult time accepting grace. There was this poem written in 1875 by William Henley. The name of the poem is Evictus. Maybe you came across this in English composition class. This poem is quite famous. It's really the only poem that we know of that Henley published and this poem has been quoted by people like Winston Churchill, Nelson Mandela. In fact, there was a movie called Invictus that came out in 2009 with Matt Damon, the South African rugby team. And that was kind of attached to Nelson Mandela who quoted Invictus in some of his speeches. President Obama has quoted this exact poem also. If you go to a high school, college graduation, you'll most likely hear some type of quote from this poem. The last few lines strike me. These are the last four lines of the poem. It says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate, the captain of my soul. This is our cultural narrative that whether we realize it or not, this is what we live in and around. This idea that you can't really trust anyone else. You need to take charge of your life, self-sufficient, you are the master of your fate. You are the captain of your soul. This is the message that comes and swirls around us. And sadly, professing Christians fall into the same type of thinking, of this cultural philosophy. George Barna and his team survey people all over the country, and in one of their surveys, they asked people who identified themselves as born-again Christians, they said, do you believe this statement? God helps those that help themselves. Do you believe that's a, either a direct quote from the Bible or an excellent summation of what the Bible says? 70% of born-again Christians said, yes, we believe this verse and quote is in the Bible, and it does sum up what the Bible says. I'm here to tell you that this is not what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9, and 10 fly in the face of this. Look at 8, 9 again. I want to read it again. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The reason that self-sufficiency being masters of our fate, captain of our soul. The reason that doesn't work in this life is because of this. It's because we have a desperate need for grace because of our sin. We are sinful people. Often in our Western culture, we like to replace the word sin with the word mistake. We don't like calling ourselves sinners. We feel more comfortable calling ourselves mistakers. I didn't mean to lie on my taxes. I just made a mistake and I put down the wrong numbers. I, 
I didn't mean to totally lose it on Jamboree Boulevard when my kids were going crazy in the back seat and I screamed at my spouse. I just made a mistake in, in judgment. Well, whatever you call it, though, when we're really honest with ourselves and we look at the holiness of God, we can call it mistakes, but really the reality of it is, is we are sinful people. J.K. Chesterton understood this in his life. And there was a 20th, early 20th century newspaper in London that posted a question to readers, and it said, What is wrong with the world? J.K. Chesterton brilliantly wrote back to this newspaper, and it was published the next week. And he said this, you can see it on the screen. What is wrong with the world? Dear sirs, I am. And that's how each of us could respond. Romans 3.23 backs this up. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when we come to terms with the reality that we're sinful people compared to a holy God, we come to the understanding that self-sufficiency will not save us, will not earn us God's grace. We are sinners completely dependent on the grace that Jesus offers us. Andy Stanley is a pastor in Atlanta, and he writes, I need more than a second chance. I need a Savior. I think that's so true. Julia Johnston wrote this famous hymn in 1911. Maybe you've sung it before, or you've heard it before, and these are the lyrics of the chorus. Grace, or grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace. God's grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. That's what we need. And that's what we get in Jesus Christ. That is good news. It's not old news. It is good news. Alistair Begg, maybe you've caught him on the radio before. He's the Scottish pastor. He says it like this. As a result of grace, we have been saved from sin's penalty. One day we'll be saved from sin's presence. In the meantime, we are being saved from sin's power. Isn't that good? That's the reality of following Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus is what allows us to receive this gift of grace. Verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith in Jesus means this, that we acknowledge that Jesus is God, that he alone through his death and life and resurrection on the cross has the power to forgive us of our sins. We acknowledge that Jesus is not only our Savior, but the Lord, the leader of our lives that we're called to surrender to as our mighty King. Romans chapter 10 Verse 9, many of you have heard it before, just listen to it again. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Some people wonder, well, okay, it's faith in Jesus, and faith in Jesus alone that saves me, that, 
that allows me to intersect with the grace of God. But what type of faith do I need to have? How strong does my faith need to be? Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, is helpful to me when I think through this. And he says this, Grace is based on the object of our faith, not the power of our faith. And then to illustrate it, he goes into the story. Here's a still from the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston version, Charles Heston version. He goes, imagine the Israelites going through the parting of the Red Sea. The ocean parts and they begin to run through it. Some of the Israelites yell back and the Egyptians are chasing them. And they're saying, you're going to get it. Eat your heart out, Egyptians. God has delivered us. Woohoo! And they're running through in full confidence that God has delivered them. Other Israelites are running through the party of the Red Sea going, oh no, this is, what's going to, oh, this is going to collapse on me. We've got to make it through. What's going to happen here? And yet Keller says, both were delivered. One walked in total confidence of faith. One was kind of wobbly in their faith. And yet both were delivered because our confidence is not in the quality of our faith, but in the object of the one that we place our faith in, who is Jesus Christ. And he is more than enough for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith in Jesus And then Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9 teaches us this, that grace is received, not earned. Verse 8 continues here of Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. That word gift here in verse 8 can be translated also to mean offering. And there's just kind of this sense, and just we just kind of get it from our culture and our own kind of innate thinking. That in order to receive the grace of Jesus, I need to give God a gift. And yet, God turns the tables on us. And instead, he is the one that offers us the gift. The gift of Jesus Christ. And as we place our faith in him, then the gift of grace is brought into our lives. Philip Yancey writes an incredible book called, What's So Amazing About Grace? And in that book, he says, grace is free only because the giver himself has borne the cost. Jesus paid a tremendous price so that we could receive grace and not earn it. I want to remind us, too, that the author of these verses is Paul. Paul was an apostle. Before he became a Christian, a follower of Jesus, Paul was named Saul. And he was a righteous zealot. He was a religious legalist. He believed that it was his works that earned his favor with God. And then on the Damascus Road up to Syria, Paul's life was forever changed as he met the definition of grace, which is Jesus Christ. And so I want you to take that into context as you're reading these passages. That Paul, the great legalist, The one who said, of course we earn our way to God. Now, as Jesus has changed his life from the inside out, is saying, it's simply a gift from God. There's nothing we can boast about. It's not from us. 
Let me kind of help you understand this, maybe in a little different way. When I was 11 years old, the Little League field by my house was given the field from Candlestick Park, the 49ers, San Francisco 49ers home stadium. All the sod from Candlestick Park after the season was donated to my Little League field. This was incredible as an 11-year-old. It changed my life. I mean, Joe Montana could have stood on this grass and passed to Jerry Rice. I mean, this is incredible. And so my friend, Morgan, who later played for the Colorado Rockies baseball team, him and I went down to the field one day when no one was there. And we found they still had the paint on the turf, the red paint of the 49ers. Sorry, I know many of you were Rams fans at that time. I apologize, but I was from the Bay Area. I didn't know better. Um, And we dug up some of that sod that had been planted on our Little League field from 49er Stadium. And he took a piece about this size, and I took a piece about this size, and we both snuck it home, and we tried to plant them in our yards so that we could say when people came over, hey, see that piece of grass right there? Yeah, Jerry Rice scored a touchdown on that. (laughs) That was kind of our thinking as 11-year-olds. Well, the grass died really quickly. It didn't last very long. I guess you have to water grass. Is that true? Um, But ever since that point, and it's weird how you make agreements when you're a kid that impact your adult life. But I remember thinking at that point, one day when I'm an adult, I want to have a really nice grass lawn. I want to like make it super nice, like, like putting green nice. And that played into my life a few years ago. I was begging my wife, like, hey, can we save some money? Can we put in some turf? And finally, we did save a little bit of money, and I bought Marathon 2. This is Marathon 2 grass. And Noah Elias, who's our neighbor down the street, I went to him, and he has a nice yard, and I said, Noah, tell me, like, what's the best grass? Who should put it in? And he goes, oh, dude, 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 dude. If you know Noah. And he goes, uh, he goes, you got to call this guy. This guy's amazing. He'll put in your grass. So I called him. The guy came over. He goes, okay, here's the key. In order to have Marathon grow and to stay, you got to dig out the old grass. You have crabgrass in here. You have a bunch of different hybrids of grasses. you got to dig down deep and take out all the roots before you put the nice Marathon on. And I was like, okay, how much is that going to cost? He said, $2,000. I was like, all right, I, I'm a pastor. <laughs> like, um, I'll just do it myself. And so I ended up getting a guy that I kind of knew through another guy, and we dug out the old grass ourselves. But it was a really hot day the day we did it. And so we kind of dug out the old grass, but we kind of got to that point where we're like, you know what, it's probably good enough. And so we ordered, I ordered the marathon grass, and it came on a Saturday morning. It was brilliant. And you just roll it out. If you've ever done this, you just roll it out. It's just incredible. And we put the new grass over our old grass. And it was wonderful. Like about a month into it, it was really looking green. And I was in the house and I look out the window and there's a guy and he just bends down and he just looks at it and touches it. And I was like, that's the epitome of a grass owner right there. If you have someone that wants to just touch your grass, that is amazing. But then about a year later, I started noticing little patches of crabgrass growing in between my beautiful marathon grass. And then about six months later, more grass, not good grass, was growing in between this pure, unadulterated marathon grass. 
And finally, I think this is the last patch of marathon grass in my yard that I just dug out to show you right here. It's all been overcome by crabgrass and other weeds. And the drought doesn't help either. If you guys could say something to the Lord about that, I'd appreciate it. But um, this is our lives. I'll try to make you understand my analogy here. (laughs) Is that in our lives, we think, okay, we got these roots of sin, but we can just like with our good works, we can cover it up. We can cover up our sin by just doing a bunch of good things. And it looks really pretty for a little while. It's nice. But ultimately, the roots of sin grow deep in each of us. And you can't cover it up enough. And it starts sprouting in little places. And you're like, well, it's just a little bit. It's fine. No big deal. But then it pops up somewhere else. And it pops up somewhere else. And then eventually, there's a drought in your life and you just give up. (laughs) You guys... The way to have sin unrooted in our lives is not to cover it, but to confess it. And to say, Jesus, I place my faith in you. You are the object of my faith. And because of what you've done on the cross, you can uproot sin out of my life. It's not earned by me. It's simply received by me, your forgiveness and your grace. That's what we celebrate when we gather here. I love what George MacDonald once said. George discipled uh, C.S. Lewis and uh, Tolkien. It was an influence in their lives. George MacDonald was having a conversation with his son one time. And his son said, Dad, grace seems too good to be true. And his dad looked at him. He said, no, son, it is so good that it must be true. That's our story. Yancey goes on to say, Grace does not depend on what we have done for God, but rather what God has done for us. And so just for a moment, I want you to turn to the person next to you. We're better together as we encourage one another. I want you to answer this question. Why in our present day is it so difficult for people to accept this free gift of God's grace? Why do we look for other things? We try to cover it up with other things that cover up our sin. Why can't we just receive God's grace? So will you turn to the person next to you or behind you? Just respond to this question for a moment. All right, let me call you back to attention. I want to show you one woman who isn't yet a believer. This was her response to that question. I asked her, what was so scary about unmerited free grace? Can you see here on the screen? It's a little small, but do your best here. She replied something like this. If I was saved by my good works, then there would be a limit to what God could ask of me. Or put me through. I would be like a taxpayer with rights. I would have done my duty and now I would deserve a certain quality of life. But if it really is true that I'm a sinner saved by sheer grace at God's infinite cost, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. I appreciate her honesty in this response. The question that I have out of that is, well, then what is God asking us? This infinite cost to him 
the grace that we receive, what is he calling us to? Verse 10 helps make this clear. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This word workmanship is the Greek word poema. And poema can be translated to mean a poem or a masterpiece. What an encouragement to us as we receive grace is that we are called the masterpiece of God. We are called the artwork, the poem of God. And I love this passage here in Ephesians 2 because it speaks to the prideful religious legalist who says, I can do it myself. When it says, no, you can't. It's simply God's grace. You can't boast. But it also speaks to the defeated Christian who feels like they have nothing to offer this world. No, you are the masterpiece of God. You are the workmanship of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ displays his grace through us. We are his artwork. And we're created in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.10 says, for good works. I want you to understand that we're created twice in this world. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're created, as Genesis 1 tells us, as uh, well as Psalm 139 tells us, we're created in the image of God. Every single person, seven billion people, are created in the image of God. But when you become a Christian, a follower of Jesus, when you receive grace by faith in Jesus, then you are created a second time. You are born again, John 3 tells us. Second Corinthians 5, you are made new. So you're created twice as a follower of Jesus, and you're created for good works. This is a mallet or a hammer, and this is created to pound nails. If it sees a nail, that's, hey, that's what I'm born for. That's what I'm created for. That's what I'm designed for. You don't use a hammer to eat breakfast cereal. It'd be extremely frustrating eating your Cheerios in the morning. What's happening here? This is created for a purpose. You and I as followers of Jesus... We're created for a purpose. We're set apart. We're the masterpiece, the poetry of God. And what we're created for, it's good works. And I love this idea that they're good works prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This just points to the sovereignty of God, the fact that God has an all-knowing plan. Nothing in your life catches God by surprise. Your cancer... God knew about it. Your hardship with your high school student, God is present with you. The joy of the promotion, God's grace involved in your life. God is with you in whatever you do and wherever you go. And he has a purpose for you. It's been set beforehand, before you even existed. I love whenever you get a chance to rent a car and you eventually make your way through the maze of car um, uh, rental places and you get the keys and you walk out to the parking lot. And hopefully your car is there, but when you get there, what a joy. Everything's been prepared for you, right? The car is filled with gas. The car has been cleaned. The GPS system is designed and ready for you to go. The toll little button, toll booth button that you paid extreme amounts of money for 
is set and ready to take you places. Everything is prepared beforehand when you step in to the rental car. Your job is simply to open the door and to sit in it and then go. And that is our lives with Jesus Christ. God shows his grace through us by creating us for good works, works that he's prepared beforehand. He gives us the fuel for the Christian life. He cleanses us from the inside out with his forgiveness. He has, and go with me on this, the GPS route of our journey. This is our God. This is his grace as it plays out in our lives. And God has saved us to display this grace to a world I don't have to convince you of this, to a world that is starved for grace, isn't it? As you live your life here in Orange County, Orange County is starved for grace. And these good works that God has prepared beforehand for you as his masterpiece, they, what do they look like? Well, I think they're things like sharing Christ and the good news with people. They're going on mission trips, being launched from Calvary Church, serving his name around the world. It's being a good neighbor. It's getting involved in some of our ministries here at Calvary. It's leading a life group, serving the poor. These are the good works that you've been prepared for beforehand. And yet, I think sometimes we place the good works that God's called us to kind of in this unique category of these are things I do every year, once a year. These are things I do when I come to Calvary. And we kind of set up the good works that God's prepared for us kind of up here. And this morning, I want to lower the shelf a little bit. What does it look like to display God's grace at the grocery store? What does it look like when someone cuts you off in line at Target during the Christmas season when you have five different places you have to go? What does it look like to show them grace rather than roll your eyes like you're naturally fitted to do. What does it look like when your child is not deserving of grace and you have a grace on them? <laughs> what does it look like to walk with integrity at your job and to actually put the actual time in and time out that you come in and when you leave and not round up because everybody else does it. What does it look like to walk in integrity and in a sense show grace to your employer? What does it look like on social media to not post every great picture of yourself? <laughs> to not comment when your cousin posts something about the Democratic Party that you could just crush with one snarky comment. What does it look like to show grace when it comes to our social media world? This is the day-to-day -day life that I want to call us to, that I believe we've been set apart even beforehand for, the everyday things. Yes, missions trips, serve days. I'm the reach pastor. I want you to go places and serve in lots of great places. And we have a brochure coming out in a couple weeks called 12 Ways to Serve in Orange County at Christmas. And I expect all of you to do all 12. <laughs> and yet... Grace is displayed through our lives often in the everyday small ways that will never be published anywhere, and yet God has called us to. He set us apart for.
Dwight L. Moody says this. Love this. Out of 100 unbelieving men, one will read the Bible. The 99 will read the Christian. As we show acts of grace, display the grace of Jesus, we're called to do this together. Hebrews chapter 10 says it wonderfully. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We're called to encourage each other. It starts with showing grace to one another in this room. And then it expands to even in our life groups and doing one-on-one with each other. Challenging and encouraging one another to be grace displayers to a world that is so hungry for grace. Let's go before the Lord. Let's invite him to work in our lives. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the free gift of grace that we receive through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to accept this free gift. There's so much in us that just doesn't feel worthy, wants to reject it, wants to earn your favor. Lord, show us once again the futility of that path. May we just simply surrender and say, thank you. And God, I pray that you would allow each of us in this place to be wonderful displays of your grace. That we could demonstrate not our holiness, but the holiness of the one that came into this world and stooped down, which is you, Jesus Christ. May we be wonderful, wonderful sign pointers to you, Jesus. This is our prayer. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. As we enter into worship, I want to give us some next steps. One is, if you've never received the free gift of grace, today is the day to do that. There'll be a couple of us over here to my left, your right, and over here to this side as well. And if today is the day, like, I need to make sure that I've received the grace of God, I want you to come up and talk to one of us. We're nothing special, but we'd love to pray with you and point you to the one that is special, which is Christ. And also, a next step for you could be joining a life group. Maybe you're not in a group of young believers or new believers or seasoned believers that can encourage you and stir you up towards love and good deeds. This would be a great thing for you to jump into. And also, we have a thing coming in a couple Wednesday nights called Discover Jesus. Maybe you just need to drill down a little bit deeper into what grace means in your life. We'd love to have you join us in a couple Wednesday nights. Starts the second Wednesday of November at 7 o'clock, just right out here in the lobby. And then immediately in this room, I want you to respond in this way. At the stations, we have an opportunity to take communion, to remember the grace that Jesus Christ has given us. And so there's the bread and the juice, and you take that as a symbol, those of you that are Christians, to celebrate what Jesus has done in your life. And there's also a bucket at each of the stations that you can give of your offering that supports the work that we do here at Calvary Church. It's part of your worship. And then also at the stations are these boards. And there's a place for you to place your thumb on an ink pad and to put your thumb on the white section of the board. This, in a sense, is a small commitment, but it's you symbolically saying, thank you, God, for your grace. I receive your grace, and I acknowledge that I'm uniquely designed by you to be a display of your grace. I don't know if you've ever heard, but 7 billion people in the world, every single thumbprint 
is different. And so God has unique plans for you. So at the stations, just be reminded of that in the symbolic act. So walk up to the stations, press your thumb into one of the boards. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 say this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Some of your thumbprints are up here. God has uniquely created you in his image and as a new creature in Jesus Christ. It's all by grace. And now our calling is to live that uniqueness and display the grace of God. And the cool thing is, people don't walk away going, wow, look at him. They'll say, look at him. Jesus Christ is who we point to as we receive his grace and we live out his grace in our day-to-day life. Remember the cross as you leave here and celebrate that. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are the giver of good gifts. Thank you for grace. May we be commissioned out of this place to go and give grace and point to you to this grace-starved world. We pray this in the name of the grace giver, Jesus Christ. Amen. Have a great week.